Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flody, and this episode is everything you need to know about intimacy, body image, and eating disorders. But before I get into it, the first thing I wanna make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you are having any issues with your health, please speak with your friendly neighborhood healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So on today's episode, I am super excited to have on with me Dr. Rebecca Behrens. Dr. Rebecca Behrens is a family practitioner and uh, I will let her introduce herself. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm Rebecca Behrens. Like you said, I'm a family physician. I have a private practice in the Houston area, um, and I take care of patients of all ages. You know, family physicians, we say cradle to the grave, um, but I have a particular interest in patients who are recovering from eating disorders, and so I have a large um, percentage of my patients that are, are in that demographic, and it's a topic I'm very passionate about. That's awesome. So I know you recently gave a talk as well on eating disorders. So maybe you can just go over for those listeners that may not be familiar with what constitutes an eating disorder and what are the most common types and how do you know if you have one? Yeah, absolutely. So there are various different types of eating disorders described in the DSM. And this is something that gets updated every time they update the DSM. So um, the general gist of it is an eating disorder is a a psychological disorder in which your eating pattern is being manipulated in a way that is physically and or psychologically harmful to your body. Um, And so that can happen in a number of ways. It may be through restriction of food intake. It may be through purging of food intake. So that's like inducing vomiting, abusing laxatives, diuretics, excessively exercising, or it may be through binge eating um, with or without purging. Um, So that's sort of the, the basic symptoms that you can see across um, a variety of different eating disorders. Um, and all of these can have a negative impact on both your psychological health, social functioning, and then of course your physical health as well. Um, and in order for it to be diagnosed as an eating disorder, we do need to see that psychological and or physical impact of the eating pattern. Um, 
And so, you know, often people who have eating disorders don't necessarily recognize that what they are experiencing, the symptoms they're experiencing are problematic. Um, they, um, they may feel it's very necessary for them to, to do the behaviors that they're doing for one reason or another. Um, so it's often loved ones or healthcare professionals who are seeing these patients that are examining them, seeing the physical signs, um, seeing the psychological manifestations and, and, and able to kind of bring to light that this is a concern. Um, and so it's something that, um, you know, I'm very passionate about educating physicians about, and then just the general public and um, especially parents of adolescents, because adolescence is a very, very common time for eating disorders to develop, to be aware of some of these, these signs and symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely a lot of issues with body image. So typically what age do you see like these eating disorders develop? Do they usually happen in adolescence or do you see them also in adults? Um, what have you seen in your practice? Yeah, so, you know, eating disorders don't always um, develop in adolescence, but that is a very common time just because that's a period of transition. You know, both it's it's stressful going through adolescence. I think any of us that have gone through it can can attest to that or who've had kids going through it. You know, it's, it's a stressful time. There's so much change happening to you physically, mentally. Um, there's body changes in particular that are happening. You're gaining weight. Your body shape is changing. Your body size is changing. Um, as you go through puberty, and and that can just be a common um, a common trigger. Eating disorders are never going to be caused by just one thing. So it's not just that you have a body image concern and now you have an eating disorder. It's usually a combination of factors. So there's genetic factors, there's um, social factors, whether that's you know the societal and cultural discussion of what is the correct or incorrect way to eat or look or or whatever else. Um, food insecurity can have a huge impact. Um, you know, your um, family of origin and, and sort of psychological uh, dynamics going on in your family can have an impact. Trauma history can have an impact. So uh, there's usually a combination of things going on that's going to result in an eating disorder, but there's something that kind of pushes it over the edge. And adolescence is a common one that does that. But it can happen in other periods of life where there's transitions, you know, later in life, divorce, menopause. Um, these are all also transitions that can... Um, can have a lot of, of triggers for people. Um, and so it's uh, not necessarily just adolescents, but that's certainly a common thing. And a lot of the patients that I see um, typically are in sort of their 30s and 40s. And what they describe to me is having had thoughts or symptoms or concerns dating into their very early preteen years, like ages of 10 or 11, sort of around when puberty is starting. It's a common thing that I hear. Do you find it more in individuals that have like some type of psychiatric underlying diagnoses, or would you say it just doesn't matter, it happens in everyone? So there definitely is an increased risk um, in a person who has another psychiatric condition, particularly mood disorders, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, um, that does increase your risk of developing an eating disorder, but that's not necessary to develop an eating disorder. Um, and so it's, you know, there's, there's so many common underlying triggers that can cause mood disorders and cause eating disorders that a lot of times patients have more than one thing going on, um, just mm. related to whatever their underlying triggers were. Yeah. You know, I'm curious to find out how you see that impacting intimacy. Yeah. So intimacy is definitely something that I see hugely impacted in people who are struggling with eating disorders. Um, the, the most obvious thing that I think most people can relate to is if you're having difficulty 
feeling comfortable in your own body and with your body image, you know, obviously in an intimate situation, your body is very exposed. It's exposed to another person. Um, that can be very challenging when you're already struggling with your relationship with your body to then have, um, have that exposed to someone else. Um, but also, you know, so many people with eating disorders have a trauma history, um, and that trauma may or may not be sexual abuse, you know, childhood, physical abuse. Um, it may be domestic violence. It may be just complicated family dynamics with maybe an alcoholic in the family or someone else with substance use disorder in the family or someone else with an eating disorder in the family. Again, it's very genetic. Um, and, and all of those sort of trauma triggers that also, as I'm sure you you know, you have probably discussed before, um, that impacts a lot of the, our self-image and the way that we just function in general. If you're holding trauma and you're holding that, um, that anxiety, you're in that fight or flight mode, it's very hard to shift your body into a more relaxed state where you can enjoy and participate in intimacy. Um, so I definitely see that, that trauma being a huge trigger for a lot of people. Yeah, I can definitely see that, especially, you know, a lot of times when we talk about intimacy, you know, we're referring to physical intimacy, but I'm sure also emotional intimacy, right? If you're not, emotional intimacy develops when you feel that you can trust the other individual. And if you feel that you're not able to trust them or be vulnerable with them, then that will definitely affect your relationship and your emotional intimacy that if you don't have that, which a lot of times for women is the building block, then it's hard to move toward physical intimacy. And definitely in patients that have issues with body image, right? Physical intimacy can be a huge, huge problem. So I'm interested also to know what type of physical manifestations are there when patients have eating disorders? Yeah, so so one thing that I see fairly commonly is vaginismus. Um, mm. So, and I think this, this all relates back to that same sort of, you know, maybe there's a trauma history, maybe there's just like an anxious disposition or, whatever it is that is increasing someone's likelihood of experiencing vaginismus, which, you know, is basically unable to adequately relax the vagina to allow penetration or um, to, you know, be able to enjoy um, penetrative intercourse. That is a super common thing that I see. And it's not a direct mm -hmm. result of the eating disorder. It's not, not related to the um, energy deficit or any of the eating disorder behaviors, but it just is something that I see very commonly comorbid. Um, and a lot of times that has to do with trauma and I'm sure you've, you've probably seen yeah, this in your practice absolutely. as well. Yeah. Um, but there are also other physical symptoms that are related directly to the eating disorder behaviors. So you mentioned the, um, emotional intimacy and being able to, to have that intimacy with someone else that is definitely impaired in someone with, with an eating disorder. If you have a negative energy balance you start to have difference, differences in the way your brain is functioning. Um, so mm. your mood is not going to be as well regulated. You know, your neurotransmitters are not functioning normally the way that they would if you were adequately nourished. Um, and that mm. can definitely impact your, your social functioning. Um, one of the common things that we see is people's, people's mood and their affect changes when they're malnourished. You know, they're, they're more withdrawn. Their affect is more flat. It's harder for them yeah. to engage in intimate conversations. So it's not just because of the psychological stuff going on. It's actually also a physical manifestation of that negative energy balance. Wow. Okay. I had no idea. That's really interesting, really important. Um, what other things do you see? 
Yeah, so another thing that you can see, and this is, I would say, probably less common, but certainly does happen um, in cases where there's been very severe restriction, um, where, you know, we now are seeing sort of a shutdown in our normal hormone functioning. So the way I always explain it to people is if you are restricting your intake for a period of time, your body starts perceiving that as famine, right? So it's going to start to shut down any non-essential process in your body to keep you alive because it has to conserve energy, not knowing where the energy is going to be coming from in the future. And so what do we need to live? We need our heart, our lungs, our brain. Those all need to be functioning for us to stay alive. But everything else is going to kind of slow down. Um, and actually, even the heart rate will slow down. Um, so gut function is one of the first things usually that people will see. They may experience constipation, feel full more easily because their gut motility actually just slows down as an energy conservation measure. Um, but the other thing that we commonly see is um, the pituitary axis starts to mm -hmm. shut down as well. Um, and so many people are familiar with hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is when that hypothalamus pituitary axis actually starts to shut down production of, of hormones to stimulate menstruation because basically what you've told your body is there's not enough energy around so we can't be making babies right now um, and so hormones are starting to shut down your reproduction starts to shut down and then you may actually lose the period um, so what can also happen there is estrogen levels can fall um, and you can actually experience some of the vaginal dryness or vaginal atrophy that you might experience in menopause um, and so that's, that's sort of directly related to that energy conservation process. If we get to the point that hormone production is so severely limited because of that, um, you may actually experience that atrophy as well. It's amazing. So many physical manifestations of what's going on, right? And um, with the eating disorders, definitely, you know, I knew of the period stopping, which is what you were talking about with the amenorrhea. But in terms of the vaginal dryness, I mean, that all makes sense, right? If you don't have hormones acting on those ovaries, stimulating the estrogen and that progesterone to happen and to come about from the ovaries, then of course, you're going to experience that menopausal symptoms, which can be, you know, the hot flashes, the night sweats, the mood swings, also that vaginal dryness that women often experience and that vaginal atrophy, right? Because estrogen is needed for all of those important um, activities to occur in our body. And when we don't have them and we're missing them, then definitely um, different physical manifestations will start to occur. So that's those are really, really important things. And I think sometimes we don't think about the secondary actions that happen as a result of an eating disorder. You know, we just think of, oh, the person is you know, binge eating and then they're throwing up or, you know, they're really restricting their food, but we don't, um, you know, it doesn't occur um, all the other things that are happening to the body as well, right? When you have that decreased energy in the body and what, what happens. I'm wondering, you know, I'm curious, do you notice that a patient's hair starts to fall out as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So we can see um, thinning hair, nails can become more brittle. Um, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, more like angular colitis, dry, dry lips, a lot, of, um, a lot of skin manifestations and skin hair and nail manifestations that can happen as well. Um, and certainly, again, just these are non-essential things, right? You know, our, our body's focusing all of its 
efforts on keeping those essential functions alive and, and conserving energy by getting rid of those non-essential things. And hair is one of those. We do see, though, um, growth of lanugo, which is like that sort of fine baby-like hair on the skin. Um, so that usually grows as a, as a means also of energy conservation to hold heat into the body and reduce the need for the body to produce its own heat to maintain body temperature. Um, so we do see hair growth, but it's not the same as hair on your head. You can see thinning hair on the head and then growth of lanugo on the body as well. You know, and I would think that actually all of that, you know, the thinning of the hair, the brittle nail, uh, nails and the dry skin has a lot to do with the estrogen, right? That's Those are symptoms that we will see in menopause as well, postmenopause. And so, you know, the hair falling out and things like that, because all there's estrogen receptors all over the body. Mm-hmm. And so when that estrogen level goes down, everything is affected. And uh, so interesting, you know, and I'm sure, of course, like you mentioned, the hypothalamus is being affected. So of course, your thyroid, right? Yeah, yeah. Also affected. Absolutely. Yeah, the thyroid, the thyroid is, um, is definitely something that we see decreased thyroid hormone production. And, and some people can actually end up getting, getting erroneously diagnosed with like hypothyroidism when they actually have euthyroid six syndrome um, as a result mm-hmm. of that energy energy deficit um, and energy conservation. That again, it's just uh, conserving energy by pro- not producing anything non-essential. Wow, yeah. So what would be the first step for somebody that realizes that they have, you know, perhaps they didn't even realize that this is what was going on with their body and that they were really um, almost, you know, making it very difficult for their body to continue to form energy and perform the functions that it normally does. What would be the first step that they would need to take to basically help themselves try to get better? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's very important for, a person who's struggling with an eating disorder to have the right team of people helping them. It's not just one person that's going to get you through this. You need a team. You need a medical provider, ideally, you know, a physician who's well-versed in eating disorders. Um, You need a therapist who's well-versed in the treatment of eating disorders who can help with the psychological manifestations. And then you need a dietitian who can help you with um, ensuring that you're, you know, adequately fueling yourself so that you can restore any, um, any weight or, um, or function that was lost, um, safely. Um, and, you know, depending on your level of medical severity, that may mean that you're going to be treated at the level of an inpatient hospital or a residential treatment program, or you could be treated in like a partial hospitalization program, intensive outpatient or outpatient only just depends on where you are medically and what's going to be medically safe for you. Um, there's, um, several great resources out there to help people find help. Um, One of them is um, the National Eating Disorders Association, so that's NEDA.org, NEDA.org. They have a helpline, they have um, resources to kind of direct you to the right people. Um, There's also a wonderful organization called Project Heal um, that can help with funding. So this is something that sometimes is difficult to get full insurance coverage for. Um, and um, or if patients are uninsured or underinsured, they have high deductibles, maybe ac- accessing treatment's going to be financially difficult for them. Um, Project Heal can help them navigate that and, and provide them with um, resources to help financially with their treatment. Um, there's several online treatment um, options now, which is really great and just opens up access for people who are maybe in areas that aren't major cities and don't necessarily have a lot of professionals nearby. Um, so there's, there's several great online tools that are available for do, getting virtual care from a dietitian, therapist, and even a physician. 
Um, so there's a lot out there. Um, and it's, it's a lot more than there was even, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so, but the first step is, is really important and often is going to require a loved one helping to support that person. Because like I said, it's, this doesn't feel like a problem necessarily to the person who's affected. Um, uh, or if it is a problem that, you know, they're, they're feeling so, um, they may feel stigmatized about it. They may not want to talk about it. They're going to need some support for a person to get them to where they need to go. Um, so having a, a trusted friend or loved one or partner who can help you navigate that process and, and keep you engaged in treatment. That's so important to have that proper team. So you must, do you have a team over there with you that works um, with clients or patients that have the eating disorder? Yeah, so in my practice, the majority of the patients I'm seeing are people who have already gone through that initial treatment and they are okay. um, mostly recovered or, or in recovery. Um, and usually they have a team established from their treatment. I don't personally have therapists or dietitians in my office, but I work closely with therapists and dietitians in the community that are treating these patients. Um, and then we have a wonderful specialty clinic here in Houston where patients who are more active or medically unstable can go and get you know, properly referred to the appropriate level of medical care for their initial treatment. Um, and um, so I, I work closely with all of those professionals. Um, and if I have a patient who is more acute or has a relapse out of their recovery and needs that, I can always refer them. Uh, but it's definitely a team approach and definitely requires constant communication between the team as well to make sure the patients are getting um, getting the help that they need. I can only imagine how vulnerable the patient must feel, right? I mean, discussing something as an eating disorder, which is highly stigmatized, um, and then finding that trust in their physician and then trusting that that physician is going to you know, send them to people that also understand uh, eating disorders and can empathize and treat them the way they need to be treated, right? So yeah. I'm sure that that must be a very difficult position for a patient, but having someone caring like you taking care of them, I'm sure that they, you know, can find the support that they need. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that is that is definitely a big thing. And, and one of the things that that is a huge barrier for a lot of patients is going to a physician and um, having their symptoms or their concerns minimized or not believed. Yes. Um, you yeah. know, patients who, it's a very small percentage of patients actually who have eating disorders and are actually underweight. Um, I think there's a, it's about 6%. Um, the rest are either in the normal BMI category or in the overweight or obese BMI categories. They're, they're not necessarily underweight. But I think a lot of physicians, you know, we have a lot to learn in med school. I think eating disorders was maybe one one lecture my for his second year of med school. Yes. Um, it's not something that we spend an inordinate amount of time on in our initial training. And so the vast majority of physicians are not gonna have a lot of experience. Um, and there is sort of this assumption that if your eating disorder is that serious, you're probably really underweight and your labs are gonna be off. In reality, labs are often normal until the very, very late you know, critical stages. Um, mm. And the weight can be normal or even above what, what is considered normal. Sure. Um, yeah. And that does not mean that the patient is not suffering from still a very severe and serious medical condition. Um, and so it is really important to get to the right professionals who really have an understanding um, of eating disorders and their severity because it can be dismissed, especially in patients who, have, um, who live in a larger body. 
Yeah. You know, I think what you said is very important, right? Is that physicians have to look at their own biases and not have preconceived notions of what a patient looks like that may have an eating disorder. And a lot of times, um, if patients are more um, fuller bodied, then it, you know, it continues to stigmatize them more, right? And they already are having issues with their body image. But then if they meet a physician that either if they don't believe them or dismisses them, then I think that only adds to their mental trauma. Yeah. Or prescribes so. them weight loss. I've, I've seen that happen many a time where uh, someone is um, seeing a physician who's in recovery from an eating disorder and the physician looks at their BMI and says like, oh, you need to lose weight. Here's some Ozempic, you know, it's, it's really, um, it really, you really need to be, um, understanding of, of what a patient has gone through and what's, what's going on and make the right choice for that patient, not based on an algorithm. Right. And to really get a good history and really talk to them. And I think that building that trust and honesty with your patient is probably really key in getting the patient the correct help that they need and helping them to move on with their own struggles. So really important work that you do. So how would a patient or a client or somebody that is looking to get help with their eating disorder, how would they reach out to you? How could they get in touch? Yeah, so my practice is called Vita Family Medicine in Houston. Um, and I'm on um, social media at Rebecca Barron's MD on Instagram and TikTok. Um, but my, my practice in the Houston Heights area, um, the website is VitaFamilyDPC.com. Um, we are a small practice. We only take a limited number of patients each month. So um, we do just have, recommend reaching out through the website and um, we'll get you onboarded as soon as we can. That's awesome. Yes. And so hard to find a caring physician that really understands eating disorders. I think, you know, similar to sexual health, right? We didn't we didn't learn about it much and we don't uh, and often a lot of practitioners are not comfortable discussing it or talking about it. And so then patients are really left in the dark, right? They don't know where to go, who to go to. So again, really important work that you do. And so I'm so grateful that people have you to go to somebody that really empathizes and knows and understands the disease process so that they can get the proper care. So thank you so much. And well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you are having any issues with your health, please speak with your healthcare provider. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends. And thanks for listening.